God's word for us this morning comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I know I said until 25, my bad. We're going to read until verse 26. The Lord's word for us this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And I have a treat for you. We're going to read in the NIV version. I know, I'm so adventurous. So this is God's word. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, it for, because his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. Let us pray for these things, then we'll begin. Father, we are going to, as we have prayed over it multiple times this morning, we are going to talk about your righteousness. Once again, we confess, Lord, that it isn't, your righteousness is not what we often think about. And perhaps, and perhaps, Lord, that is why we are not really thinking about your righteousness as in our daily lives. Father, it is very important that we have, a, we have a complete understanding of your righteousness. Because apart from the righteousness, apart from your righteousness, the work of Jesus Christ will not make sense. So Father, we pray that may your Holy Spirit come into our minds so that, so that and testify truth in us, so that these words will become clear, and meaningful, and these words will inspire us to live righteously. Also, Lord, through these words, give us, once again, give us a deeper understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. All these things in the name of our King we pray. So we are continuing our series on the character of God, the nature, the characteristics of God. And it is very important, perhaps it is the most important thing to study about the character of God. Because we need to know the God that we worship, right? And I think, I think my, whatchamacallit, my underlying philosophy or guiding principle in my ministry and my sermons is people don't live in accordance to how God has called them to live primarily because people don't know who God is. People are unfamiliar with his characteristics. And that is why it is of the utmost importance that we have a deeper understanding of the nature of God, the character of God. So this week, we're going to study about the righteousness of God. God is righteous. What is it, why is the righteousness of God such an important topic? According to Mr. Paul Washer, 
It is his Bible study book that we're doing this, basing the sermon series on. He says, the righteousness of God describes God's intrinsic and inherent nature. Righteousness is not what God decides to be or do. It is his very nature. It is essential to his very nature. So the righteousness of God, it is absolutely essential to his nature. If you think about God, you got to think about the fact that he's righteous. God and righteousness go together. They're they're inseparable, right? Just like me being an Asian, right? No matter what I identify as, at the core of who I am, my, my nature is I'm Asian. And God bless for that, right? The nature of God is righteousness. I know for a lot of us, when we think about the nature of God, what is the first thing that comes into our mind? If I say God, you say, oh, man. And I say, God, you say? Oh, the Starks, no. But besides for the Starks, everyone with, most people will think, if you think about God, the first quality that you, come in, that, that, that you have in your mind is love. God is love, you say. Right? That is the first quality that most Christians think about when they think about God. And I'm not saying, right, the love of God is not his essential nature. It is. But his love, we can only truly have a full, complete understanding of his love when we also understand about his righteousness. If you don't know his righteousness, the defin- his love is, is, is a meaningless, shallow thing. Even to have a complete understanding of God's love, you've got to understand his righteousness. I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, 11 years ago, this pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, and it, quite, it caused quite a controversy in the evangelical world. The book, title of the book is Love Wins. And the premise of that book is that Mr. Bell says, God will never send people to hell. Right? He may punish people for, for sins a little bit while they live, I suppose. But in the final judgment, Right? Just as, about to, just about as he is about to send people to hell, God will change his mind and say, come on, you knucklehead. Yeah, you did bad, but I'm going to love you and forgive you anyway. And he's going to snatch them back, and he's going to love on them. Rob Bell says, God's not going to send anyone to hell. See, at the end of, end of the day, what? Love wins. God's love wins. He's not going to send anyone to hell because God's love will win in the end. I can understand why he would say that, because we want to, we're kind of attracted to the idea of a God who just embraces all our sins and don't judge us. We like that idea. But even though I may certainly understand why Rabba would write such a book, dare I say, that definition of God's love is not biblical, it's shallow, and ultimately it is wrong. It is wrong because that God, that God's not going to punish people for their sin kind of love is inconsistent with his righteousness. Yes, God is love, but God is also 
righteous. You cannot separate his righteousness from his character. You cannot. You will not understand the gospel unless you understand God's righteousness. Then the question, my dear friend, is what is righteousness? What is righteousness? I will tell you. Righteousness of God denotes his rightness, his correctness, his moral excellence. God is morally correct. God is morally correct. He is morally honest. He is just. He is he is morality itself. If there is right or wrong in the universe, he is the one that is always right. Things are right because he is right. Things are moral because he is moral. Right? God made the universe into a moral, righteous place. But because of Adam's rebellion, the fabric of the world has been, it's, it's been sep- separate, right? Because of, since Adam's rebellion, even though God made everything initially righteous and good and perfect, because of Adam's rebellion, wrong entered the world. Since Adam's rebellion, the world is divided into right and wrong. And in this dual category, God is the one who is always right. We must understand, it's very important that the world and our time here in it, there is right and wrong. All of us are kind of raising the idea that everything is gray. There is no right and wrong. It's up to the situation. That is not biblical. In this world, there are clearly things that are right. And there are clearly things that are wrong. God is the one who is right. And God is the one who is moral. And God is the one who calls all these people to live correctly, rightly, and morally. If you are a follower, if you're a child of God, you're going to reflect his nature. And if you're going to reflect his nature, you and me are called to live rightly, correctly, and morally. Do you understand? Think about the most moral person in your life. Can you think about it? Do you know anyone who's really moral? So sad. When I was trying to think about someone really moral, I couldn't really think of anyone. That's so sad. Right? The few people that I don't personally know came into my mind when I was asking this question to myself. Who's really moral? One moral dude that I thought of was Thomas More. Sir Thomas More. You know who Sir Thomas More is? He was a high-ranking Church of England clergy. Right? He, well, I think he was one of bishops or something. He was a really high-up clergy guy during the reign of Henry VIII. And my daughter is an expert on Henry VIII because that's one of the musicals that she likes. For those of you who don't know, Henry VIII is the guy, is the king of England who founded the Church of England, the, the Episcopal Church. And the reason why he found, the reason because he, England before then was under the Roman Catholic, it was Catholic. Henry VIII made a new branch of Christianity. Why? Because he wanted to get a divorce. 
He was married, and he wanted to get a divorce, and the Rome said, you can't get a divorce. Henry VIII says, oh, yeah? I'm going to make my own branch of Christianity. That's going to allow me to get divorced. Thomas More says, sire, you cannot get a divorce. Divor marriage is a union only God, that God has made, and no one, not even you, can get a divorce. That didn't please Henry VIII. And so he threatened Thomas More, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to chop your head off. Even unto the very end, Thomas More says, divorce is wrong. He got his head chopped off because of it. In Thomas More's mind, it's clear what right and wrong is at that moment. And even, and even if it costs his life, he's going to stand for what is true and good and moral. That's the type of life that God has called us to live. Doing the right thing. Another moral guy, or, I mean, they're not, they're not, obviously Thomas More wasn't morally perfect. In this situation, he was. Another guy that had come into my mind when I was asking this question was John Piper. John Piper has issues, I know. But John Piper says, and I believe him, he says the only woman that he saw undressed is his wife. No picture, right? No magazine, no whatever. He hasn't seen anyone else who is naked besides his wife. John Piper is almost 70. That's different from us. We don't even think about turning our, turning our eyes away. John Piper, for 70 years, turned his eyes away. That's moral. Alistair Begg, my hero, someone gave him a novel to read. It was a classic novel. But the, but the cover of that novel was an artistically done, half-naked woman. Alistair Begg, as soon as he discovered that, he, he, he flipped it over, got a, got a black trash, you know, like, like taking out garbage. He looked at it, ooh, and he turned it over, and he took a black paper bag, placed that book in it, tied around it, and threw it away. Why? Because that's the moral thing to do. Why are, why are these men like that? Because they know God is moral. And they want to live in accordance to God's nature. God is morally pure. God is right himself. What is right is because it, it, it reflects God. God is morally perfect. And that's what it means for God to be righteous. You understand? We're clear about the definition of righteousness? There are a few verses in the Bible, I'm going to tell three, that displays the righteousness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says, God is the rock, his works are perfect, 
and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. He does no wrong because he is morally perfect. Job 32, verse 6. Who has prescribed his ways for God or said to God, you have done wrong? No one can accuse God of doing wrong because he is morally perfect. Psalm 36, verse 6. Your righteousness is like the highest mountain. Your justice is like the great deep. God's righteousness covers the earth. It is high. It is low. It is everywhere. God is morally perfect. In the reality where there's right and wrong, he is right, and he's calling all of us to live right, to choose right, to choose what is correct and good and moral. I didn't think I was going to get this passionate, but man, I'm getting really passionate. Because we're made in the image of God, we too have a deep yearning for right and a hatred to evil. Do you know that? We're made the image of God who is righteous. And because we're made in God's image, we too have a love for what is right and hatred towards what is wrong. A few examples. Number one, I just thought of this example when I was looking at Sean Stark. One of the, one of the websites that I go to is called, this website called Comic Storian, right? Comic Storian YouTube channel. It's about th this dude who reads comic books and who acts it out, right? It's like he covers major comic book stories, and he acts it out. I am Batman, he says, and he reads out the comic books in this voice. Some of his clips are two hours long. He's reading comic books for two hours, and he gets hundreds of thousands of views. And I was thinking about this. Every comic book that he reads, you know what's going to happen at the end. Joker's going to get caught, right? The, the Magneto's going to get destroyed, right? Avengers going to win. Every, we know the ending of the two-hour journey that he's going to read. Is there a doubt? Do you think you doubt that Joker's, not, Joker's going to get away? No, Joker's going to get caught. But people... Go through that site, listen to those stories for two hours anyway. Why? Because I think they want affirmation. At the end of the day, good will triumph over evil. You understand? A whole entertainment industry is based on this appetite for good triumphing over evil, right, being, right people prevailing at the end. Look at the top 10 box office movies in the history of America and the world, and they're all permutations of this. It's all Avengers defeating Thanos. It's all Luke Skywalker defeating Darth Vader. It's all about Avatar, Navis destroying evil men, evil white men, right? It's all good triumphing over evil. They make billions of dollars because people need affirmation that the right will always triumph over wrong. 
we have that appetite to see it unfold before our eyes, even if it's entertainment. We have a desire for the right to win. We also have a hatred for evil. It mourns us. The whole the U.S. You know, culture is, for the last year, was just, we can't get away from discussion of racism and the evils of racism. And I think that there is a universal outcry against racism because we know racism, placing a value on someone based upon the color of their skin is evil and wrong. There is a universal condemnation of racism because we know that is wrong and we're outraged by what is wrong. Same with the Me Too movement. A few years ago, remember Me Too movement? It was discovered that all these men in power were, were, were abusing women and there was an outrage. That outrage is because people hate wickedness, and wrong. Even unbelievers who say there is no objective truth, when they look at things that are wrong, they, are, they condemn it and they hate it. We're made in the image of God, therefore we love what is right and we hate what is evil. But, the prob- but our problem is this. Because we're alienated from God, God himself is a standard of what is right, moral, and good. When we're alienated from him, we still have the desire for right and wrong. But when we're alienated from him, even though we have the desire for right and wrong, we don't know what right and wrong is anymore. We're made in the image of God. We have the appetite to love what is right and hate what is wrong. Yeah, that's true. We passionately love what is right and hate what is wrong. But because God is alienated from our consciousness, we don't know what right and wrong is. That's our problem. And because we don't know what right or wrong is, we get to decide ourselves what is right and wrong. We love, we really love what is right, and we really hate what is wrong, but because we don't know God, we choose for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, and we really love what we think is right, and we really hate what what we think is wrong. Without God, everyone thinks that they're right, and everyone hates what they think is wrong. My 12-year-old daughter told me, Dad, everyone thinks they're right. And I go, you are my daughter, baby. That is so deep and well thought out for a 12-year-old. And she's right. Everyone thinks that they're right. And everyone hates what they think is wrong. You see this unfolding in our culture today. Republicans think they're absolutely right. And the Democrats are absolutely wrong. Democrats think Republicans are absolutely wrong, and they're absolutely right. How do I know? 
My go-to when I, when I drive my car is I, I set Fox News and CNN in the, in the Sirius XM channels. One is Fox News, one is CNN. I go back and forth, back and forth when I'm driving. And it's like I'm listening to schizophrenia, like America's schizophrenic. Because Fox News says everything that they stand for is right, and CNN thinks everything that they stand for is right, and CNN and Fox News, you know this, cannot agree. But their disagreement is not only disagreement in policy. There's a real loathing for each other. It's not just a theoretical, philosophical difference that they're promoting. They think the people who are wrong are evil, and they need to be punished and silenced. Once again, we love what is right. We hate what is wrong. And we really hate people who are wrong. That's why the fruit of sin is clear, is division, strife, arguments. Take God away, we make a determination of what is right and wrong, and we really hate what we, really hate what we think is wrong. Look, married people, I'm talking to you. What is the nucleus underlying problem in your marriage? You think you're right. And you think your spouse is absolutely wrong. And it's not even civil disagreements, right? The longer you don't agree, maybe the difference you start civilly, right? You have differences of opinion. But the more the conversation progresses, you're more you get impassioned by your, your opinion of what, what is wrong. And as you are more impassioned by what you think is right, you think your, you speak, your spouse is absolutely wrong. And not only is she absolutely wrong, she's immoral for thinking that way. That is why. You, because you think your spouse is wrong, you have no qualm about punishing hurting your spouse. Because in your mind, if something is wrong, it needs to be vanquished and punished. Am I right? Your argument is all about who think, is, who think you're right and who think it's about right and wrong. And your desire and my desire to punish those people who we think are wrong Namely, your spouse. I think this belief that we're wrong and the desire to vanquish and punish people who are wrong, that is a nucleus of not only your domestic strife, but all the wars in the world, all the abuses of the world, comes down to this. We all think we're right. And we hate other people who are wrong. We're made in the image of God, who is righteous. But because we don't know God, our desire for righteousness is causing such harm everyone and everything. 
how do we know what is right? How do we know what is right? God is who is right. How do we know what God's definition of what right is? That is why he gave us his word. God didn't leave us alone just to figure out right or wrong ourselves. He gave us his word to reveal to us what is right. God is self-existence, which means he exists whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. And that self-existing God says, I am holy. And how do you know what is holy? How do you know what is right? My words I give you. Whether you agree with it or not, the Bible is the revelation from God that reveals to us what right and wrong is, what right is. That is why Psalm 119, verse 137, the psalmist praises God for his law because it is God's law that reveals the righteous character of God. How do you know what right is? God revealed it through his word. What is, the right, what is the righteousness that God revealed in his word? Look at the Ten Commandments of Moses. What does it mean to live righteously? What does it mean to live right? Number one, recognize that God is God and there is no other. Everything starts from the understanding and awareness that you and me are not God. You and me are not the center of existence. God is. The foundation of living correctly is recognition that there is one true God and you're not it. It's the living God. What does it mean to live correctly? You worship this God. You make it your mission to find out more of who this God is. Your mission in life is to honor this God. The second part of the Ten Commandments is loving other people. What does it mean to live correctly? It means to respect and love and, 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 and embrace the dignity of a human being. Not humanity. It's easy to love humanity, but impossible to love a human being. God is talking about a human being. To live correctly means you, you respect the humanity and the dignity of the made the God image person in your life. What does it mean to respect the humanity and dignity? It means you don't hate them. You don't murder them with physically, or you don't murder them in character through gossip and slander. You don't lust after them. You don't, you don't use another human being for, either, for your own benefit. You don't lie to a human being. You don't envy another human being. You don't steal from another human being. That is what it means to live correctly. Love, recognize God is a true God. Loving God and loving the humanity and the dignity and of the other person. That is what it means to live morally. That is how God revealed it. The law of God reveals a righteousness of God. What is a life that God finds righteous and acceptable? It's a life that is living in, 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 the, in the same nature, same way as who he is. 
So in order for God to consider us righteous, we need to, listen, we need to obey the law of God. Understand? God revealed his righteousness through the law, and the way that we become righteous and acceptable in his sight is if we live in accordance with his revealed righteousness. But the problem is this. The law of God not only reveals God's righteousness, the law of God also reveals how unrighteous we are. Right? When you read the Bible, it's not just the commandments of God, you notice, but when you actually start meditating it, you begin to realize you're not this person that God wants you to be. God says, I am God and there is no other. Worship me. But if you read the Bible, he reveals, God will reveal to you, whoa, you have a lot of little gods in your life. You worship so many other things before him. That is why in James chapter 2, James says, the Bible is like a mirror. A mirror that reveals your blemishes. You're not going to know what you, what you really are like unless you open up the Bible and read it. And when you actually read the Bible, it reveals that you're not righteous. You're not the one person that God wants you to be. If you don't read the Bible, then you're, you're trapped, right? You think you're, you're kind of good because you set your own definition of what is good. But when you actually read the Bible, for example, when you actually read the passage, when Jesus says, not only adultery is evil, but looking at another person lustfully is also very evil. When you read that passage, you go, whoa. I'm evil. You look at the passage, you, you open up the Bible, and it, it condemns slander and gossip. Before reading the Bible, you go, oh, I can gossip whatever I want, Right? But when you read the passage about the gossip and how evil it is, you realize, oh, whoa, I'm evil. The Bible reveals God's righteousness, but the Bible also reveals our, unrighteous, our unrighteousness, and therefore, we're not acceptable before God. Keep in mind, God is not neutral about unrighteousness. He's not. Because he is morally pure, a morally pure God hates what is not morally pure. You know what I mean? A morally pure God who is indifferent to immorality, that's not a morally pure being. If you're a morally pure being, you have to hate what is not good. Right? Let's say there's a judge and he thinks he's a good judge, right? But if he turns his eyes away for criminals, then he doesn't, that doesn't make him a good judge. Look, I think I told you this example. Um, I promise I'm going to end in eight minutes. You, you watch me like land this plane in eight minutes, right? Like when I was like, you know, when I was in my poorer days when I had to like slum it and take the metro to DC for work, right? When I was slumming it, right? Sometimes in the morning, I had to stand up because, you know, the rush hour subway, you know what I mean? So there's one morning, I was standing up and the thought, if you're standing up and other people are sitting down, you have like a God's view of people's phones, 
right? And I was like standing and doing this, and I was, I, was, I was being nosy. I was looking at what people were looking at, right? Because, you know, that's what you do. And this old fella was looking at half-naked pictures of, like, young Asian women. And when I looked at that, my initial response was both anger and sadness. Angry at that man objectifying these young girls. Saddened by the fact that he cannot help but to do that. When God sees their unrighteousness, he's not neutral about it. It saddens him and also makes him angry. I had a conversation with my wife last night. She's, going, she's reading through Isaiah and the prophets. She says, I never realized this, but these, these, these books where God condemns Israel for their sin, you can see God's anger, but you can also see God's Sadness, he said, it saddens me to read. That's a very accurate depiction of how God feels about unrighteousness. When we act immorally, there's a sadness and anger. Because our unrighteousness causes real-life casualties. When, we're when we act unrighteously, it's not a victimless crime. Married people, how many cuts and bruises do we give one another? Because we think we're right and our spouse is the very person that you promised to love and cherish. How many times are you cutting them with your words? Bruising them with your unkindness? Single people, how many times are you bruising these women that you objectify? I'm, not only am I judging me, I'm judging myself for this too. Our unrighteousness is not a victimless thing. It causes the most harm. So what is the righteous God supposed to do for the unrighteous? who cause him such anguish and anger. That's where Romans chapter 3 comes from. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. God says, what, is it, what did verse 21 say? What does verse 21 say? In the back. It says, 
But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The law of God reveals the righteousness of God. But there is another righteousness that is revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God that is revealed apart from the law is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way that we become righteous, right, is two ways. Number one, to perfectly obey the law of God. That's how you become righteous. Number two, for any of our sins to be forgiven and washed. That's how we become righteous. For us to obey God, and, for, and, and, and any other sins that we, we, we've done, we need cleansing. We need, we need cleansing. The gospel of Jesus Christ does both. God hasn't changed the requirements, right? The requirement is still moral perfection. You need to obey the perfect righteous law of God. But you and I know that we can't. That is why we need to believe in Jesus. Who, what, did, what did Jesus Christ come to do? The first thing he came to do is, as a man, he perfectly obeyed God's law. There is only one human being in the history of humanity that obeyed God's law perfectly, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. We are helpless. We can't obey these laws because the work of sin it is within us. We were helpless. To save the helpless, Jesus Christ became man. And as man, he perfectly obeyed the precepts of God. Having faith in Jesus Christ means knowing that there is no way that you can obey these laws. And it is only through trusting in Christ that he did these work for you that, you're, that, that, you're, you're, that you are able to get credit for, the, for obeying God's law. You can't do it. I can't do it. Christ had to do it for us. When we recognize the fact that I can't do it, but Christ did it for me, when you truly trust in that, you become righteous. The second thing that Christ has done for us is not only has he obeyed the law that we could not obey, he died the death for our sins. Like I said, look, your and my sin casualty is a real life, there's a real life cost to it, right? For all the damages and the cuts and the bruises that we've done to our spouses, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for it? Either you pay for it, or some other substitute pays for it. And the righteousness of God is the way you become righteous before his sight, apart from dying, is if you trust that Christ died for you, then his sacrificial work becomes yours. The righteousness that God gives, apart from the law, is trusting, truly trusting, that Christ obey the requirements that you could not obey, and he died the death that you could not die. His work being credited to you as your righteousness. 
That's what distinguished Christianity from all the other religions and all the other systems. All the other religions and all the other systems believe that you need to do it. You need to earn righteousness. You need to earn salvation. That's what Buddhism, Hinduism, Scientology, Confucianism is all about. Your performance. You can do it. And if you don't do it, it's your fault. Therefore, if you don't do it, you're going to be born as a dog. Is that Hinduism? That's Hinduism, right? Hinduism is, you can do it. But if you don't do it, you're going to be born as a dog. Right? Your workplace, you need to perform. And if you don't perform, sayonara. Every system, like, and, you know, dating. You need to take care of yourself, man. You need to perform. You need a six-pack. Do you? I don't know. I don't know what women are looking for. You need like a secure job or something, and you need to fit into my image of what a man's supposed to be. If, you're not, if you don't perform, you're out of here, fella. You don't, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of all this. Every other system, every other religion says, it's up to you to save yourself. Christianity says righteousness comes when you know that you can't, and you need a champion. Do you trust in that? Christianity, the way you become righteous before God is to know your helplessness. Do you know that you're helpless before his righteous standard? It is only through Christ that you're made righteous in him. That's Romans 3, verses 21 to 26 is about. The only way that you become acceptable to God is to the trusting, truly trusting in the work of Christ. Can I ask you a, a, a question? I'm almost, I'm going to land this thing. I'm, I'm, we're, we're like, the, the wheels are coming down now, okay? You can see Dulles and the green patches in that Dulles airport. The question I want to ask you yourself is this. May I know what, why you think you're righteous before him? Or a simpler question. May I know why you think you're a child of God? If you, if you believe that you're a child of God here this morning and listening to this sermon, may I know why you think that way? Maybe some of you, maybe you, you, you were just, you were taught this ever since you're a wee child. And maybe it's just second nature to you. Maybe you never doubted it. Or maybe you think you're acceptable with God's sight because you lead small group or something. I don't know. But one day, everything that you think made you a child of God, that reason will be stripped from you. It will. And the only person who can stand before the righteous judge of God is someone who knows, who truly knows that the only reason why you're righteous before God's sight is because you trust in the work of Jesus Christ. It is that person who is righteous. You're not righteous because you raised in church and you listen to PJ sermons. Clearly, that's not true. That's not it. Do you really trust in the work of Christ? If not, come talk to me. Let me pray for you. Let me talk to you. If you don't think you're saved, please talk to me. And pray with me. And I'll help you. I can't save you, but I can lead you to the right direction. Second, application. 
the person who's truly saved, you now have the same mindset as God. And as people who have the same mindset of God, you are called to live morally. And I am called to live morally. I am called to, and you are called to live correctly, rightly. No longer. People out there think about their life is about pleasure, is about achievement, whatever it is. Our life here for all of us is about living correctly, morally in our everyday life. That's the call. Don't say things that you want to say. Don't think of things that you ought to think or you want to think. There's a, there's a self-controlled nature about you because you need to live rightly and correctly. You don't have the strength within you to motivate yourself to live correctly every day. That's why you need the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But know this. Your call from this day forth is to live morally in this world. As the Holy Spirit testifies to who God is in your heart. And three, be kind to those who think they're wrong. Be kind and be gracious and be merciful to those whom you disagree with, for those whom you think are utterly wrong. I know from firsthand, it is very hard to be merciful. It is impossible to be merciful, but we are called to be merciful to those whom we disagree with, whom we find offensive. Because God has saved us. Even though we are clearly wrong, he was merciful and forgiving to us. Therefore, we are called to show mercy to those who are in disagreement. Married people, if you're fighting right now in your homes, you need to be merciful to each other. If you think your husband is like, because unacceptable, because I don't know, maybe he's, I don't know, whatever reason you think your husband is unacceptable. Husband, if you think your wife is unacceptable, because whatever reason that you think she's unacceptable, stop it. You need to show mercy. Forgiveness. Look, I was telling my small group on Friday, what good is my knowledge of all these things? What good is if I preach all these things to you if I, not, if I cannot show mercy to my wife? What good is me knowing all this and preaching all this to you if I nag my wife and be harsh to her? What good is all the knowledge of God if I cannot show mercy to those who are closest to me? God has called you to live righteously. Ask for his help so that you can live in accordance to his, his commands. Let us pray and we'll, we will do the Lord's Supper.